I have an important question that I want to ask you, and that question is this. What kind of God is really God? There are two basic answers to that question. You have the answer of the Calvinists who are going to argue that the only God that we can conceive of, the God who's revealed in his word, is the God who is sovereign, who's omnipotent, who chooses individual sinners to election in Jesus Christ, whose will is perfect and it's never thwarted in any way. Or, on the other hand, you have the God of the Arminians, who they say is revealed in the Bible, but that God that they find in the Bible is a hand-wringing, anxious God who is all-knowing but not all-powerful, who doesn't determine the individual destinies of, of people unto salvation or even to judgment. He's just cooperating with people who cooperate with him. This is a very important question, though. What kind of God really exists? Today on Sinners and Saints, we're going to begin to explore that question, what kind of God really exists, and we're going to explore that by analyzing the Calvinistic system of doctrine, because we believe that if you begin to understand Calvinism, you will begin to understand the kind of God who really exists. So stay tuned with us on Sinners and Saints. In an age of moral bankruptcy, political sleaze, theological confusion, and aimless religion in a mindless church. We're addressing the need for a Bible-based, intellectually rigorous, 21st century Christian faith. This is Sinners and Saints. Theology with an Edge. Hey, thanks for joining us today on Sinners and Saints. And as we said, we're taking up a whole new series here on Christian doctrine. We figured it's time to get back uh, to the doctrinal issues and throw out some red meat to some of you uh, learning Calvinists out there. And what we want to do uh, beginning today and begin to explore Calvinism and contrast it really over against Arminianism. And to help us do that, we're going to be using a book. And by the way, we don't recommend that you run out and buy this book, but you can find it pretty much anywhere on the bookshelves of your local bookstore. Barnes and Nobles, Borders, or whatever. The title of the book is Why I'm Not a Calvinist, and it's written by a couple of professors at Asbury Theological Seminary, Jerry Walls and Joseph R. Dongel. And joining us as usual for our discussion is Reverend Adam Kalustian from Ontario United Reformed Church, and uh, I'm John Sautel, pastor at All Saints Reformed Church. Moses is not with us today. He's out selling Tupperware, so it's going to be Adam and I pretty much handling the heavy lifting today on this issue of Calvinism versus Arminianism. Well, you know, we started out in the introduction talking about God, and you'd probably be scratching your head somewhat. What is the connection between a proper conception of God and Calvinism versus Arminianism? After all, can't we get our understanding of God straight apart from understanding the issues involved in the Calvinism-Arminianism debate. And, and the fascinating thing here is, is that the writers of this book that we're not recommending but are using, Why I'm Not a Calvinist, also realize that the issue of who God is has everything to do with this controversy. That's right, right at the beginning of the book. The fundamental issue says the authors, the fundamental issue at stake in the Calvinist-Arminius debate is which theological paradigm does a better job of representing the biblical picture of God's character. So those who are reasonable on either side of this debate will agree that the character of the God, as Arminians conceive 
of him and the character of the God as Calvinists conceive of him are very different. And obviously, the character of God is a very important question. Therefore, this debate is a very important debate. And just to confirm the fact that the character of God is actually central to this whole discussion, the writers quote from Seinfeld. <laughs> That's right. They quote from a Seinfeld episode where I guess one of the characters, George Costanza, is on an airplane and he thinks it's about ready to crash. And uh, he blurts out, I knew God wouldn't let me be successful. Because he just knows that, you know, God must be against him. He cannot seem to get his life together ever if you know anything about the show. But at any rate, they find that to be a humorous anecdotal illustration of the issue. And they go on to comment on it saying this. It says, the question, quite simply put, is whether there are persons as as George saw himself whom God has chosen not to bless. Or can we be assured, regardless of our lot in this life, that God truly loves us, desires our well-being, and wants us to have his ultimate gift of eternal life. This question is the driving force behind our decision to write why I'm not a Calvinist. And at this point, we can agree in one sense with the way that this debate is framed. The debate between the Calvinists and the Arminians is no less than a debate about who God is. Yeah, you either have a God who is an anxious, hand-wringing, omniscient God, but chooses for whatever purposes not to exert his will into the question of who is going to receive salvation and who is going to be preserved in it and who is Christ going to secure that salvation for. That way he can end up being just this kind of lovey-dovey grandfather kind of God in the sky who really just is aching to give everybody all that they ever wanted in life if they would just cooperate a little bit with him, you know? Now, of course, that conception of God is going to be challenged by the authors, too. They would say that, Pastor John, the way that you reflect our Arminianism isn't fair. That's not the kind of God we believe in. We don't speak of God as lovey-dovey and begging and aching for people to cooperate with him. Of course, we're saying that's exactly uh, what the substance of your belief about God requires you to conclude, even though you don't want to do that. And we'll get into more of that as we go through throughout the arguments of the book. But, but it brings up something you and I were talking about before we began recording today here, and that's this. There is this notion that stands behind the rhetoric here among Arminians that God really does have an obligation to love everybody and to bless everybody. And I guess that's really the issue here. It does not seem like the conception of God, and then after that, the whole discussion of the doctrine of salvation, it doesn't seem as if it begins with the real situation, and that is that man has forfeited every right to God's blessing by his own sin. He has, he has no right or any claim at all upon God's grace or his mercy, and it seems as if that is not actually appreciated enough in the whole way they unfold their system when it comes down to salvation. Because, of course, we agree as Calvinists that God is magnificently good and loving and kind and showered all of his gifts on our human race. He created us. He had no need to do that. He did it for his own glory and to create us in his image, to enable us to enjoy all of his good gifts and blessing, to put us in his world, to take care of us, all of these wonderful things that he has done. We decided to rebel against him, to spite him to his face. And so at that point, he had the right to wipe us off of the face of the earth and to 
eternally condemn each and every one of us without any question and without having to answer to anyone, and that would have been just fine and fair. So to sort of portray the opposite of Arminianism, Calvinism, as people who really are undercutting the love of God and the glories of his goodness and magnificence and kindness really is not fair. Because of course we believe in a good and a loving and a kind God. We're the ones that have alienated ourselves from him in the first place. No, what it does is it frames the debate in a very advantageous way to them. As if on the one hand, Arminianism has this loving, doting God who just can't wait to bless you if you just respond. And Calvinism has this mean-spirited, awful, vindictive God who can't wait to damn everybody to hell. You see where the negativity is placed? They say that the negativity, the bad stuff, the thing that doesn't make you feel good, that comes from the Calvinist view of God. The Calvinist says, no, it doesn't come from our view of God. It comes from what man has done. That's right. The negative, bad, terrible things to think about, like hell and condemnation and so-called no chance, that's what mankind did to himself. This is not God's fault. This is not something of God's character. Now, of course, the Armenian is going to object to that and say, well, let's go behind that for a minute because you Calvinists also believe that God sovereignly, meaning in absolute control, appointed as part of his plan that mankind would sin, and therefore your view of God is that he has desired this all along, to which we would respond, and we'll go into this a little bit later. Look, there's no way that an Arminian can worm his way out of that so-called problem either, because if God knew before the foundation of the world that this mankind would fall into sin, even if it was an act of his own free will, and that ultimately he would punish some of those who would refuse to, say, exercise their free will to receive Christ, and they would die and go to hell, then why didn't he stop it? So they have the same sort of problem, if you will, although we don't, we're careful how we use that word problem. We think that the scripture answers that uh, so-called problem for us in different ways. All that to say is, The bad, the negativity, the condemnation, the problem is really with mankind. And to say that if you're a Calvinist, you believe it's in God's character is a subtle, dishonest debate tactic. It just doesn't reflect the truth about what we believe. So with some of those things now forming the context of this discussion, let's get down to a little bit of how the authors begin to engage the topic here of Calvinism versus Arminianism, and they begin by making some sort of attempt to, de- to define Calvinism. To be sure, there's a lot of ways, there's a lot of things that need to go into the puzzle when you get down to figuring out what Calvinism is. And I think, first of all, they rightly note that Calvinism really stands for a system of thought that was given uh, greater clarity of expression by Calvin, but they also note that it has its roots in the history of the church, notably in that great early uh, Christian theologian, St. Augustine, and then after that, various others within the history of the church would basically have fallen in line with this Augustinian theology, the idea of a sovereign electing God who sovereignly and graciously saves sinners through Jesus Christ, but was picked up and clarified by Luther and then given greater uh, definition and clarification from the Scripture by by Calvin. And, And that's basically correct to begin to sort of trace it out. Calvinism does not drop out of the sky in the 16th century with John Calvin, who uh, all of a sudden reading his Bible came across various insights that nobody in the church before had had discovered. Calvin is standing on the shoulders of, as we've said here, Augustine and many other theologians, and even decisions of the church councils throughout the history of the church, which were basically pretty clear about the fact 
that God is sovereign and gracious and electing in his salvation. But, John, did you notice something? You want to talk about a noticeable absence in this little introduction section here, what is Calvinism? Immediately he goes into talking about John Calvin, and that's understandable. But it's important in this Calvinism versus Arminianism debate to maybe, say, ask the question, who is Arminius? Because if it's true that Calvin is just standing in a long line of people who are teaching what he taught, even though he developed it a little bit more systematically, the reason why this became a debate in the church is because of a guy named Arminius and his followers. In other words, Arminius and later his followers come onto the scene where the dominant theology of the Christian church is Augustinian, and he begins to pick up on various small strains of anti-predestinarian thought that, of course, had existed in different forms throughout the history of the church, and he begins to make us think about it. And this guy, Arminius, was born in 1559. He's a Dutchman, and he was undergoing basically an interview to be appointed to the academic uh, theological faculty at the University of Leiden uh, in the Netherlands, and it was under great controversy. He was a very gifted scholar, He had a number of pastors that followed him and learned from him. Of course, they had great sway among many of the lay people in the congregations uh, at that time. But he was undergoing an interview, and the guy who was interviewing him for his post was concerned, not so much specifically because of his anti-predestinarian teachings, but what that might mean for his understanding of justification. This is an idea that will a return to later. But in any case, in the midst of all of this controversy, Arminius died in 1609, but the controversy continued to swirl all around him. And then in 1610, and this is the important thing to remember when you're thinking about the acronym TULIP, and again, why are we saying all this? We're saying all this because it's, it's completely absent. 42 ministers put forth what is called the Arminian Remonstrance, or they put forth an, an official expression of their protest, a formal statement of their grievances against the understood teaching of the Reformed churches in the Netherlands, which was Augustinian, predestinarian, as we call it today, Calvinistic. And this remonstrance asserted five points specifically about the Bible's teaching on salvation or how people are saved. The response to the Arminian Remonstrance, to those five points, is what today we would call the five points of Calvinism, or TULIP. Now, why are we even talking about this history? Well, because he is trying to set up his understanding of Calvinism. He's defining Calvinism for the reading audience, so they're going to have some grasp on what the basic issues are. But, But noticeably, what's absent from his discussion of what Calvinism is all about is the issue of justification by faith alone, which is really the central pillar and tenet of Calvinism. And that's really what the crucial issue is. So you always have to remember, when you're dealing with the issue of TULIP, and we're going to get into it in a moment here, what stands behind this issue is how do we preserve the gospel, which is justification by faith alone. Now, he doesn't reference any of the controversies for whatever reason, and we don't know why, but he brings up TULIP, and he begins to walk through what TULIP is all about here. Well, hold on, Pastor, a minute, because you said, why are we talking about the history? Well, it's because it's important to understand that what was at stake was more than just, say, what we call today the five points, but the the connection of the five points to the gospel of justification. That's one important reason. The other important reason I think that you understand this, this controversy historically is because typically 
the Calvinism Arminianism debate, and it's especially true of this book. Sometimes you'll read like an Arminian book and it will be very clear that, look, they just don't embrace Calvinists and anybody who believes in Calvinism must believe in a different God. But this book in Arminianism starts with what I would tend to say is the predominant view that's promoted out there when you hear about this debate, which is that basically you have all these Christians that are on the same team as Christians and then you have this internal debate of whether or not people are Calvinists or Arminians. But I just want you to know the Arminian remonstrance caused the churches in the Netherlands to call together an international group representing all different kinds of Protestant churches throughout the continent of Europe to come together to meet at the Synod of Dort, Dort being the city in which they met, in order to review what the Arminian remonstrance were bringing forward and to decide whether or not it was biblical. And after this international group of church pastors and elders came together and studied these issues and carefully considered what the remonstrants were saying, they rejected the remonstrance. And they said, no, you are wrong and unbiblical. The Bible clearly teaches the opposite. In fact, the majority of the Christian church, which has been reading the Bible in an Augustinian, predestinarian way, is right. You are wrong, and you as ministers are defrocked. And we do not accept you as on the same team. So don't get the impression just because Walls and Dongel here present it this way that, well, we have a lot of admiration for our Calvinist uh, friends and we appreciate a lot of what they do. We just think they're seriously wrong on this point. That the view of the predestinarians has always been the same, the opposite direction. It has not been. What's at stake here is the gospel. And you cannot persist in defending a false view of the gospel and still claim to be on the same side as the scripture and of Jesus Christ. Just get that right from the beginning. So that that brings us back again to Tulip, which he wants to narrow the debate down to, like we said, just this collegial debate among Christians who happen to have passionate uh, viewpoints on both sides, but we're all still Christians here. No, the church has been pretty clear in saying uh, you have to accept the, the Augustinian a churchly, historical view of salvation, or you're not a part of the church. Yeah, that's not just John saying, it's not right. just Adam, that's not just the URC. This is the International Meeting of Reformed Churches at the Synod of Dort, 1618 and 19. So he begins summarizing uh, this tulip thing with total depravity. In fact, he does a very good job, I, I would argue up to a point, talking about total depravity and saying he even agrees with it. And For instance, he says that um, total depravity describes the desperate condition of fallen sinners apart from the grace of God. He says that sin has affected every facet of the human personality, that our thinking is distorted, our emotions are deceptive, and out of proportion, our desires are unruly and misdirected. Quotes a number of scripture passage, even uh, Ephesians 2.1, which describes as fallen sinners outside of Christ as dead in their transgressions and sins. And then he says that is so pervasive and deadly is the effect of sin that they can no more respond to God or do his will, then a corpse could respond if commanded to get up and walk. Now, the thing that's just staggering about this is he agrees with all of that, but then he injects his Arminianism into the picture. And we wanted to pause on this just for a minute because it's interesting how the book doesn't deal with total depravity. Besides what he's saying right here, this is basically what he's going to say about it. Yeah, 
and and that's interesting to to keep clear in mind that the the pattern of argument in this book the first half of it is about exegesis supposedly you know what the bible teaches about these debates the second half's approach is basically there are philosophical presuppositions that calvinists have when they come to the biblical text and when they come to their system that aren't really biblical and that make make them think the way they do and make them draw the conclusions they do but I don't want you to miss what Pastor John just said. The Arminian system is not really expounded at all in this book. He spends most of the time in the biblical exegesis section just giving an alternate interpretation for the typical verses and passages that the Calvinists used to prove their position. So really, he's only going to attempt to give really positive kind of proof for the Arminian view here in his early and quick survey of Tulip. You'll notice that, and so that's why we want to take it up here. Yeah, and, and so he, after affirming what we said here about total depravity, which is what the church has always taught about total depravity, like we said, he injects his Arminianism in, and he says the Arminian and Wesleyan answer to this whole problem of man being totally depraved is that the death of Christ provided grace for all persons as the result of the atonement, and that God extends this grace to all persons through the Holy Spirit, and that supposedly counteracts these terrible, uh, these terrible effects of sin. Now, he really doesn't argue it. He quotes a couple scripture verses here, but, but pretty much he wants to just summarize what Arminianism is saying, as if, well, this is the obvious counter to total depravity. Like, anybody who had half a brain and had read the Bible, knows what, well, God has already provided a remedy to the problem of total depravity, so we don't have to really worry about that. Yeah, it's obvious, basically, is the tone you get. John fifteen, twenty six and 27. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Oh, that proves it, right? There you go. Yeah, there you go. Prevenient grace. You know, man is totally depraved, but since the Holy Spirit's coming to the world, I guess that proves that everybody's going to have enough measure of grace to be saved and made alive if they will just choose to believe it. That is not any kind of proof whatsoever. Not any proof at all. Acts 16, 7 through 11, he quotes, Nevertheless, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Okay, so... He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Does that mean that he's imparting a certain measure of grace on every individual person that ever lived in order that they might freely exercise the choice of believing him? It doesn't say that at all. I mean, it it may theoretically be a reference to that or not, but it doesn't prove this idea. Well, it certainly wouldn't in light of other passages in the New Testament. Even in the book of John, which talks about the operations of the Holy Spirit coming upon individuals and awakening them to the knowledge of their sin as being like the wind, which blows where you can't really discern where it's coming from or where it's headed. It's mysterious. The Holy Spirit's operations are sovereign and mysterious, and it takes that sovereign and mysterious uh, work of the Holy Spirit to open up somebody's eyes and convict them of their sin and, and give them a new heart so that they can see the truth. He just assumes that that's happened with respect to everyone. And so now we've dealt with the issue of grace. Hold on, John. I've got to give you this one more because he quotes, again, Acts 7.51. And this is Stephen preaching to the leaders of the Sanhedrin who are about to stone him because they've rejected Christ. Now they're rejecting the gospel message. And he says, you stiff-necked people, 
uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so did you. And that is supposedly proof that prevenient grace exists, that man is totally depraved, but then God gives a certain measure of grace to everybody, and then they choose to reject it, but hey, they had the chance. And we're saying, that doesn't prove that at all. I mean, it just proves that the Holy Spirit is still testifying to the truth of God, the holiness of God in a fallen human race, and that people reject it. That's all that it means. That's all that it says. So to take these passages and sort of just assume that it's obvious that that must mean prevenient grace is just not right. So you you have him trying to save uh, the graciousness of Arminianism in the context of the fact that all men have plunged themselves into a state of 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 sin and perdition and condemnation by the so-called doctrine of prevenient grace, which is a very speculative doctrine, which is not in any way really thoroughly rooted in Scripture. So that's his answer to total depravity, which is the enormous problem that Arminianism has to face, but he's not willing to do it apparently, okay? So he he touches on this and says, okay, we got an answer to the total depravity issue, which would be a big issue if we didn't have prevenient grace. Basically what he's saying. But he says, but he doesn't really go on to defend it any further than a, a few unexplained scripture references. Well, and it can't be defended, and, and many Arminians or Wesleyans will just tell you it has to be true. Right. We can't find it really in the scripture, but it's an inference because we have to believe that everybody is given a fair shake and a chance. And so the only way for that to happen is their prevenient grace comes into the picture. But it's just not in the Bible. That's which, the problem. Is, which is imposing a presupposition of the text, which probably is rooted in their understanding of God being a loving God, how could he possibly not give everybody an equal chance? At any rate, he brings up total depravity. He brings up unconditional election. doesn't say a lot about that. That's going to come back later, another chapter we're going to deal with it. And then he comes on to limited atonement, where he summarizes the issue correctly again, saying that basically Calvinists believe that Christ died specifically for his elect people to save them from their sins, and then he summarizes the Arminian position by saying, well, no, Christ actually died for all sinners alike. But he does something that's kind of interesting. Um, He says, but it's noteworthy that recently a number of Calvinists have expressed reservations, and in some cases, outright disagreement with the traditional notion of limited atonement. Now, what's his proof for that? Well, he says, well, they don't like the term limited, so they call it particular atonement, uh, and they've argued over this term. Well, fine, you can argue over how you want to qualify particular, limited, or whatever. I don't know of any well-known Calvinists who are claiming to stand with the Calvinistic tradition on Scripture denying this concept of Christ dying to save his people for their sins. In other words, I don't know any biblical Calvinist out there who claims to stand within the tradition of historic Calvinism and historic Augustinianism who's denying that Christ died to save a specific number of people for their sins. But the impression that you get here from the text is that, yeah, even limited atonement now is being discussed as a negotiable issue among Calvinists, which uh, clearly that's wrong. So he goes into that, then he touches on irresistible grace. Remember here, this is his just summary definition of Calvinism. That's why we're going across this here. He brings up next uh, irresistible grace, that it can't be possible that God would make all these provisions for salvation, and then sinners could ultimately end up rejecting God's provisions of grace if he actually had elected them and given Christ his son to die for them. 
he doesn't really dispute that. He just says that it has some coherency problems with other biblical passages. And then he finally gets on to the issue of perseverance of the saints. And I, do, I think he does something helpful there to clarify that perseverance of the saints, as Calvin just understand it, is not the same thing as eternal security. Now, you'll hear some Baptists talking about eternal security. And they um, basically mean by that, once you're saved, once you're in, you're always in. And at least he notes that that is not really how Calvinists have used the term perseverance of the saints. Yeah, one other thing to say about that is that at an earlier point in this introductory section, he did want to uh, clearly make the point that it's possible to begin a genuine relationship with God, but then later to turn from him and persist in evil so that one is finally lost. And I thought that was interesting language. Possible to begin a genuine relationship with God. And, you know, that's too vague. Because there are multiple ways in which we can speak about having a genuine relationship of, with God and it not being saving. For example, I mean, you could say it in this way. I like to think of it this way. In one sense, our problem is that we have a relationship with God. The problem is that we're his creatures and we're sinful. And everybody has that relationship with him, whether or not they're aware of it and whether or not they like it. So that is a relationship and a genuine one that we have with God that we have to address. There's another one. You can be a member of his covenant and have, in that sense, a genuine relationship with him and then not be saved. You can have the outward appearance of being right with God by being a member of his covenant and have that genuine relationship, but then later, as he says, you know, turn from him and persist in evil so that one is finally lost. Now, of course, you were never truly saved or regenerate, as we, of course, as uh, biblical Calvinists uh, believe, or the sense in which he's using it is you could be truly saved and then persist in evil and, and leave God. And, of course, he tries to bring... A scripture to bear on that, Romans eight twelve and following Romans eleven nineteen through 22. We'll talk about some of those texts uh, later. He talks about Hebrews 6. They always bring up that passage and, and Revelation 2, which interesting, Revelation 2 is talking about a local church, not talking about individual believers. But in any case, Hebrews 6, a classic example, along with Romans 11 that he brings up, if he understood uh, the basic contours of covenant theology, God's relationship to people who are in and around his church who are not really saved, then he'd have an, an ability to understand how this fits into the whole context of Scripture. But he can't do that. And we'll come to some of these texts uh, more specifically later in the series. So, so his working definition of Calvinism here is tulip. And so we might then ask the question, which he himself raises, that, okay, why bring this topic up? I mean, since it's just some sort of intramural debate among Reformed and, and Arminian colleagues— you might ask, well, what's the point of bringing this up if it's really not that big of a deal? Except some people have some really passionate ideas about it, but at the end of the day, we all believe we're saved because we trust in Jesus alone, and so we're all good on that. We just like to haggle over you know, these little peripheral uh, minor issues. Well, he kind of starts by saying, look, the reason why we have to talk about this is because Calvinism is on the upsurge, and, and he just people are finding it popular, and he kind of speculates on a couple reasons why that might be. The first is because when you know he agrees, if you look around at American Christianity, you see it as entertainment-driven, it's doctrineless, it's seeker-sensitive. And look, if Calvinism is anything, it's serious about doctrine, and it's passionate about the Bible, and it's zealous for the glory of God. So people, whether or not it's really coherent— it's kind of his point. I think it's 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 wrong and unbiblical, but at least it gives the appearance 
of these things. And so, you know what? It seems like a very good antidote. You might as well embrace that to combat all of this other junk that's going on in American Christianity. Yeah, well, I I thought one of his vivid lines in here, he says, in such churches, these seeker-sensitive uh, market-driven churches that are all about superficial Christianity in order to attract a big crowd so you grow a big church. He says, in, in such churches, God is often reduced to a cosmic bellhop whose only concern is to meet whatever needs contemporary people feel in their lives. And of course, yeah, if you are at all any kind of a, just a superficial observer of contemporary North American evangelicalism, you'd have to pretty much agree with that. I mean, his assessment is correct, and he says, well, one reason why Calvinism is making such a big comeback is because at least Calvinism uh, makes a serious attempt to take God seriously and not just to reduce him to uh, somebody who's who's there uh, to answer when we snap our fingers and say we need something in life that makes our life more comfortable. Yeah, although I will say it, it never ceases to amaze me how some, at least historic Calvinists, can still try to maintain the Calvinistic system, but their churches don't look a lot different than the broader well, American. I uh, wish you would have engaged that a little bit. Yeah, that's uh, so. You know, I don't. Maybe that's true. Maybe it is true that that there has been some superficial attraction to Calvinism because it's the opposite of what is out there, and people are disgusted by it. And yeah, it's true that not everybody who says they're a Calvinist really has good reasons for for saying that they're that or really might not be biblically convinced, but they like to get in debates and whatever. So I don't know. Maybe that is one reason for popularity. Well, he also shows that I think this is part of the reason why he's writing it, too, is because he's somewhat alarmed about the fact that a lot of younger uh, Christians are fascinated uh, by Calvinism and are being drawn to it. The so-called Gen X and, and Generation Y young people are really coming to Calvinism in droves because they're seeing that there are real uh, biblical concrete answers and they're being attracted to this objective understanding of God and of his salvation. And so even in his foreword uh, to the book, he says, uh, to every member of Gen X and Y who has ever joined in an argument about Calvinism, thereby shown that interest in serious theological issues is alive and well in your generation. In other words, he's fascinated by it, he's intrigued by it, but obviously he's disturbed by it because he's saying, wait, you shouldn't be attracted to this God, this terrible Calvinistic God. We have a better explanation for who God is and about what salvation is all about. So uh, he's trying to engage the discussion for that reason. What do you think, Pastor, about this other reason that he gives for why Calvinism may be so popular? He says, it seems to be breathing some new life into an otherwise sterile and legalistic devotional life, or at least that's what some people are saying. They they appreciate about Calvinism what it has done for them in their devotional life, in their spiritual fervor. Yeah. Well, he quotes from uh, uh, an article here where at least one of the reasons given why by uh, some young person about why they were attracted to Calvinism, they said, uh, we are free to be creatures again. We are no longer had the burden of trying to be the creator. I guess their their impression of Arminianism or this uh, superficial, seeker-sensitive theology is, is that they have basically supplanted the creator with themselves. And they said that they are in control of their own destinies, and uh, they, they had rather longed for it. A, a big, giant, transcendent God, which is actually the God of the Bible, who Calvinists uh, profess to be not only God and Creator, but also their Savior. I've always heard it the opposite way, though. I mean, that's what's so interesting about this, is that generally when you hear people talk about Calvinism from the Arminian side and sometimes the Calvary Chapel side, is that they say, oh, stay away from this big, bad Calvinistic God, because all it's going to do is 
is has turned you into a legalistic person. It's going to stifle your devotional, uh, your, your 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 devotional life. And they're giving that as the the reason why they're coming to Calvinism. I thought it was very interesting insight in here to kind of the people who are being attracted to this a very robust robust biblical doctrine of Calvinism. So listen, take it from the lips of an Arminian. You know, if you are an Arminian, listen to the author of this book and stop accusing Reformed theology or Calvinism, turning people into theological talking heads and, you know, dead Christians not doing any good works, not zealous for the Lord. First of all, it's just not true. I mean, it does happen that you'll run into people who are unsanctified, and just because they happen to believe Calvinism doesn't mean that that's the cause of their lack of sanctification. But, I mean, I can appreciate that this guy points that out. I I was surprised to hear it, like uh, John says, we always hear the opposite. But uh, Calvinism, far from uh, quenching the spirit and pouring water on your pious zeal, will actually encourage it, and for the right reasons. So these are some of the introductory issues that we want to get into today. Again, the book is Why I Am Not a Calvinist. We're going to be using some of the arguments in here to contrast with Calvinism. And what we're going to try to do is engage you in the issues. And remember now, this debate is not simply some sort of an intramural debate between uh, pious Christians who just have serious disagreements over uh, some peripheral matters. It is really, ultimately, all about God. It is about ultimate issues. It is about how God is to be worshipped. It is about how God is to be glorified, and it has enormous implications for your life and for the ministry of the Christian church. So we want to invite you to stay tuned with us in our series on Calvinism and a proper view of God. Join us next week as we tackle more topics with the truth of God's Word on Sinners and Saints, Theology with an Edge. 